Mr. Balper and the team of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance on a Monday. This is weekly Monday appearance, and he's also made it on a Monday. He's the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest on this edition of the program, as he does every week. Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball of particular note this week. An extended conversation on the subject of diminishing returns. Past weekend, I rototilled my yard, but was faced after rototilling that yard with a number of clay chunks in that same yard. Clay chunks, which it would have taken hours, perhaps days, to break up effectively. Given uh, constraints of time, I was unable to do that and therefore had to leave the clay chunks on the ground. What, I asked Dave Cameron, what in baseball is like this? And he cites immediately the possibility of batters possessing too much exit velocity. While players like Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton occupy place at the top of the exit velo leaderboards, some of the best hitters in the league, for example Mike Trout, Bryce Harper, are simply able to produce very good exit velocities with great frequency. So there's diminishing returns and there's high velocity ranges is the point. We discussed Chris Davis's, both with a K and a C, home runs, park factors, and the wasted peak years of Adrian Beltre in Safeco Park. I inquire of Dave Cameron how two of 2016's worst clubs, by any measure really, uh, this is the Minnesota Twins and Milwaukee Brewers, I ask how they are now in first place in their respective divisions. And finally, Dave Cameron provides a scathing indictment of the host of this program and his talents, or his lack of talent. This skill set is not something that anyone wants to pay for. Those hurtful remarks, and more like them in what's to follow. What I should do right now is to make a comment about Fangraph's memberships. They exist. Fangraph's memberships exist for a reasonable sum. Readers and listeners are able to acquire a Fangraph's membership, which will allow you to support the work that is done at Fangraph's, and which you receive free on a daily basis. And for a slightly less reasonable sum, readers and listeners can acquire an ad-free membership, which will liberate you, which will liberate those same readers and listeners from the tyranny of banner ads, facilitating faster loader speeds, faster faster loading speeds, I'm told, and also allowing one to escape the tyranny of, and the distortive effects of advertising, the tyranny of the distortive effects of advertising. A lot of possessives there. What, What belongs to what? This is a question or a Zen cone. Okay. Let's move on from all of that junk and uh, get on to a conversation. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. When does it begin? Right now. I just wrote down clay chunks. Uh, seems like maybe it could be a tennis thing, or it could be like a guy named Clay who had too much to drink. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think Clay Chunks means? I'm probably going to ask you about the Brewers, too. But in the meantime, Cameron, what I've done is I've uploaded a, a photo to our, our uh, company message board. Yeah, our Slack group. Slack group, right. Yeah. And... Uh, <clears throat> I don't know, was it last time we spoke? Yeah, last time. I had, uh, remember, so we do this thing where I ask you, I say, I, I characterize something, I pull something from real life, and then I say, what's, what in baseball is like that? We do this sometimes, Dave Cameron. Mm-hmm. We do it almost every week. Yeah. More like you do this to me. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's unwilling on your yeah, part. I, I'm not participating uh, voluntarily. 
Last week, what I showed you was a photo of my backyard. And uh-huh. if you could, if you briefly characterize what you saw last week in the in, in the image I showed you, horrifying nothingness. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. It was, it was like looking into to my future, for example. Yeah, it was the, vo- <clears throat> right. the void of hell. Right. Yeah. And uh, it was a mud hole. I think <clears throat> this is a uh, colorful term you used to describe it. Well, in the meantime, Dave Cameron, what I've done is to install the remainder of the beds. Uh-huh. I put in some shrubs with straw as mulch around the uh, around the base of the shrubs. I have applied compost to uh, much of the yard and and mixed that with grass seed to grow grass. And then I have also uh, mixed in buckwheat seed in some other areas, which will eventually be home to wildflowers. Now I've sent you an image of of the yard as it currently stands. Do you see it now? <coughs> I do. Yeah. Would you do? Do you regard that as an improvement? Sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, still there, was, dirt. there was nowhere to go. Last week's <clears throat> yard was the Padres, so right. Okay, yeah. But you, so right, and that's where we were talking about a re, a rebuild. And I, you had actually brought up you. I thought you did a really good job at this. Um, you'd brought up some of the white flag trades for clubs right. that are like on the fringes of competitiveness, but then yeah. just kind of say, "Nah, it's not going to work for whatever reason." Maybe it's it, it's a uh, it, it's a wise choice. Sometimes it's not. Um, the, I have another yard-related question, and, and actually the, the specific aesthetic appeal of my yard is not important this week. Um, or any week, really. No, I know. But, but what it brings up is I think, I think it, uh, there's something translatable here. Perhaps not. I suppose we'll find out. So here's what it is. I used a rototiller on basically my entire yard, right? And if you're familiar with a rototiller, it's a big, dumb, gas-powered machine. It just has a rotating blades below it, right? And it cuts into the ground to create, in theory, um, uh, better soil, right? So that yeah. uh, it's more aer- aerated, etc. In the process of doing that, and this is not very surprising because I have heavy clay soil, okay? A lot of what came up were, um, in, I mean, it's, in many cases, it, it certainly improved the soil, but I would just get these chunks of dried clay. We hadn't had rain for about a week. And some of the dirt, and you can't really tell the difference between these and rocks, Okay. Until you touch them and if you, you know, kind of, you can kind of pry them apart with your fingers. Now, I did, so here's the thing. I had a choice to make. Um, and the answer was always going to be no. And the question was, should I, should I, uh, take, should I make the effort? Should I take the time to break up every one of these clay chunks that was brought to the surface, right? Again, they have a rock-like quality, so it's not great for, uh, it's not a very fertile, uh, medium for growing anything, right? Um, here's the thing. I did all the work with the road till. I raked in the seed. It, and, and I think things are going to work out decently. However, if I really wanted to do the job well, I would have had to break apart all of these clay chunks. And yet that would have probably itself, that would have taken at least as much time as all the other work combined. Right. Okay? I would, And it, probably more, just because there's so many of them around. So here's my question. What it, what what is like that? Because I I made a choice. I said, and, and part of it was that there was constraints of time and resources. I can't spend all week breaking up clay chunks. I have to do this job in theory, <laughs> and uh, I also have to see my wife and eat right. So I couldn't I couldn't take all that time. It would have made the yard better, but probably relative to the amount of time, it was just an impossibility. It wasn't so much a choice as just an impossibility. Yeah, you're basically describing diminishing returns, right? Okay. Can, uh, yeah, I was can, I was curious. Yeah. So you're, you're you're describing the idea of like 
the more effort I put into this, the less I get, I get out of it. And, or, you know, for the same amount of effort, I'm getting less in return than I used to. So essentially what you're going to do is you're going to do the amount of effort uh, up to a point at which you feel like the return is worthwhile. And then you're going to say, like, you know what? I could get 10 more cents on the dollar uh, if I continue to do this, but that 10 cents just isn't worth it. I'm going to stop here. And so what's, like, what's like diminishing returns in baseball? Well, conveniently, I actually used that same phrase in my post today, talking okay. about uh, Alex Avila at exit velocity, because there are diminishing returns on uh, extremely high levels of exit velocity, right? So, like, um, say you're, uh, I don't know, Chris Davis, right? The Baltimore Chris Davis, not the Oakland Chris Davis, though they're right. basically the exact same player. They're basically the same player. Uh, they don't. Yeah. They actually don't really look that they same. Are, they, they look wildly different. They they're bat different. from different sides of the plate. Yeah. Chris Davis is kind of, or uh, the uh, Orioles version is kind of like, t- I mean, they're both strong, obviously, yeah. but he's like, he's much taller. Right. Whereas it's the, it's the, it's the, the left fielder for the A's. Uh-huh. Who doesn't really look like he should be hitting this many home runs? No, yeah, he's five ten and stubby. Yeah, yeah. he's Maybe not not that. an athlete looking guy. Or Chris Davis, the Baltimore version, like yeah, this is a guy who looks like you know you can sell jeans on this guy. Right, and he also doesn't swing hard somehow. Yeah, <laughs> Chris, the big yeah. Chris Davis. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, they're also a different color. They're, they are different they're, colors. They're wildly yeah. different looking yeah. players, yeah. but but yeah. like from if you just look at their stat line, it's like these. This is the same guy. This yeah, is, yeah, uh, yeah. They're, they're doing the same thing, and they're like about worth about as much. At least, well, I haven't checked uh, the outfielder Chris Davis's numbers this year, but even though Chris Davis, A's version, theoretically plays a more challenging position, then they're worth about the same say, defensively. Yeah. I think. Yeah, because uh, uh, a Baltimore version is a good defensive first baseman. Oakland version is a DH playing left field. Right. Okay. Um, and, and, and as I say that, the I, I see now the UZR figure for uh, outfielder Chris Davis is, is close to negative five so far this year. Which, yeah. again, small sample, but not, not uh, great. also were, somehow illustrative of his skill. Yeah. And he, when he was coming up, this was basically the knock on him. is like, short guy, weird swing, can't field. Right. And I think he's got, like, maybe one of the worst arms. Yeah, he has baseball. a really terrible arm, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm interested what... Uh, Tango scouting report. <laughs> so the most recent version, would you like to guess both his arm strength and arm accuracy for this past year? We go 6 and 12. You are so close. Oh, man. 7 and 14. Oh, man. I was so close. Yeah, you really were so close. That must – I mean, I have to imagine that's one of the worst yeah, possible Maybe like Juan Pierre could be like lower maybe. Yeah, but again, you don't expect it because like he's right. such a strong guy. Yeah. yeah, he's a brute of a man who throws yeah. like Juan Pierre. Yeah, what an interesting player actually, Chris yeah. Davis. They're both a, they're both really interesting players. Yeah, uh, they really are. But the yeah, original right. the original point was to talk yeah. about like so Chris Davis, both of them, mm-hmm. regardless which Chris Davis you think I'm talking about, pick yeah. a Chris Davis. They both hit the ball like really hard, but they don't hit the ball quite as hard as like Miguel Sano or Aaron Judge, right? Like uh, Sano is hitting the ball harder. Like his average exit velocity on balls in play or contact balls is 98 miles an hour, which is ridiculous because second place is 94 miles an hour. That's like, so that's the uh, all right. So what's so what is the league average roughly? Like 89. 89, okay. Yeah. And, so, and, so that was like 10 miles an hour faster than that. Okay, and what's the standard deviation, do you think? Uh, that's a good question. Like, standard deviation between players is probably two, maybe three, okay. something like that. Okay. Yeah, the, the range of guys is generally 86 to 92. That's okay. kind of where most guys fall. And then you're like, Billy Hamilton's at 80. <laughs> Miguel Snow's at 98. Like, All right, so, uh, so, so 98 is, that's really, because I've seen like, like I saw recently, like hardest hit ball by a lefty in the Statcast era, and it was like one fourteen. Is that um, Joey Gallo? 
Because he had one one fourteen, I think, the other night. Yeah, I think it might have been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Gallo, you could throw in that category, kind of up there with Judge and Snow, guys who just hit the ball like ridiculously hard, right? Like the, this one ten plus is pretty rare, and like it's not rare for Aaron Judge; he does it all the time. But um, if you're a guy with power, you're Baltimore Chris Davis or Oakland Chris Davis, pick a Chris Davis. Uh, you hit the ball one hundred five, you get almost the same results as if you hit the ball one hundred nine or one twelve or one fifteen. Okay. Like that, like you could try and like really go to the gym and like you know figure out how to swing even harder and try and get that extra three miles an hour. But like, yeah, you know, I'm not like the ball's going to go four hundred and forty feet or four hundred fifty feet. It's going to be a home run either way. Uh, getting that extra exit velocity doesn't really help you that much. So it's the clay chunks of swinging harder. <laughs> so to right, so go to go to the gym or do or maybe tweak your mechanics till they're just right. Or swing harder. I mean, I think that's, this is one of the interesting things we're learning with StatCast, right? It's like, Bryce Harper doesn't appear anywhere near the top of the exit velocity leaderboards. And this is a guy with generally considered 80 power. He's had 80 power since he was 15 years old. Like, everybody agrees that Bryce Harper is a scary, monstrous home run hitter. But he doesn't hit the ball that hard. Uh, at least Did he just hit it correct? Is he that just the hits idea? it right, correctly. And I think that's what we were kind of, that was kind of one of the points I made in the Alex Avila post and what we've noticed with like other really good hitters, uh, you know, Mike Trout, Joey Votto, like a lot of these guys who are really good hitters, they basically just have a really small range of exit velocity. So they figure out like, at this contact velocity angle combination, I get really good results. So I'm gonna focus on doing that more frequently rather than trying to max out on 120 miles an hour or 110 miles an hour or whatever it may be, I'm just going to try and, like, not have a 120 and then a 70. I'm going to have, like, 97 both times. Is that kind of – do you think this is the equivalent of – and I think probably Justin Verlander is, at least to my mind, is is the example that presents itself most quickly, of a pitcher who has 98 but will sit – you know, 92 to 95, especially like the early part of a game or in low, low leverage situations, just because he doesn't need 98 right then. Yeah. I mean, this is basically the, uh, you know, the starting pitching relief pitching dichotomy, right? It's like, you see guys who are 90 to 92 in in starting and then they go to the bullpen, it's 98 to a hundred. And it's like, okay, if you could do that, why were you a failed starting pitcher? Why didn't you just throw harder when you were trying to start? But the reality is like, in order to be a successful starter, they couldn't throw 98 to 100 for a long period of time. So they were doing something structurally, physically different. And then when they go to the bullpen, it's like 10, 15 pitches. Who cares? Let's just go, you know, all out and throw as hard as we can. I think hitters have figured out something similar, right? It's like you can swing as hard as possible. You can swing like Giancarlo Stanton, and you're going to get a 65% contact rate, and you're going to hit 240. <laughs> and, you know, like it's maybe you're better off, most people, swinging less hard and hitting 300 with an 85% contact rate and, you know, trading a little bit of power for a lot of contact. Now, let me, now let me ask you, um, this is a, very much in the same line of inquiry, um, and it's also a slightly embarrassing question. I uh, I spoke with Travis Sawchuk. Uh, this past uh, Friday. Is that true? Maybe it's true. I, no, no, I spoke to him at some point. Maybe it was last week. The t- the days go by, Dave Cameron, and, I, and I'm not keeping track particularly well. I spoke with him, and part of our conversation, in fact, the latter half of the conversation, really centered around a baseball simulation league of which he's a part okay. with a number of other beat writers and also former uh, Fangraphs employee August Fakerstrom. Oh, yeah. Good old August. The, the game is called... Hardball Dynasty, okay. right? Uh, but like all of these simulations, um, the owner, the human owner, uh, is allowed to pick a home park for his team yeah. or her team. Mm-hmm. 
And and now you, we've just been talking about the diminishing returns of exit velocity. And I wonder, if you have a team, say, they're, or if you have a park that is, uh, say, it uh, has a, a low home run park factor, mm-hmm. right? Now, let me reverse it. Say you have a team full of home run hitters, okay? You have a team full of Chris Davises. And we're, there's already two in the league already. You don't have to make seven more. Uh do you want to f- do you want to be in a small park or a big park or doesn't it matter because it's all going to be adjusted? I mean, it matters. So, like, if you, um, I think you know, probably the easiest example for me would be to talk about kind of the Bill Bavese roster um, and Jack Swensick followed his mistakes later. But like, say that 2003 to 2015 Mariners teams and how they were constructed. Safeco Field. It's gone undergone some changes since uh, it's you know it was opened. It's not as pitcher friendly as it used to be, um, but it, during its heyday, especially in the mid two thousands, this was one of the most uh, difficult places for right handed pull power in all of baseball. Like you could crush a ball to right center field uh, or to, to left center field, and it wouldn't go out. And this is Adrian Beltre's twenties, basically. Yeah, right? and this was the thing. So the Mariners spent a ton of money on Adrian Beltre and said, "Come hit in this park that is the antithesis of your skill set." And then the hey, Mike Cameron. Uh, you do one thing really well at the plate while well, you draw walks too, but you also you can yank the ball out out to left field when you get around on a fastball. Uh, we're gonna we really, really like your defense. Here's a ballpark that destroys your power, and like they they basically lined up uh, a never ending supply of right handed pull power hitters and stuck them in this park that was disastrous for their skill set. And then they, they, after a few years, they're all like, well, we don't think you're that good. And uh, they let Beltre go, and they non-tendered Mike Cameron so they can bring in Randy Wynn. Uh, and they did all these things that were silly, and uh, these guys went elsewhere and played a lot better. And their WRC+, Plus, which is park-adjusted, went up because they were in ballparks that didn't destroy their souls as right-handed pull power hitters. Uh, then Jack Sorensa came in and was like, you know, it would be a really good idea. Let's get a bunch of DHs who are swing for the fences. And uh, that didn't work either. Um uh, so there are certainly situations where players can be fits for ballparks um, or not fits for ballparks. So if you have a bunch of guys who, you know, hit for really high exit velocity, you don't really want to put them in a park that's gigantic to where those balls are going to get run down in the gap because then you're most likely, generally speaking, high exit velocity guys are not good defenders. Like, there's a reason we're talking about Miguel Sano at the top of this list, right? Like, uh, these are big human beings who, uh, mm. don't play premium positions. They're not base dealers. They're not going to help you, uh, a lot of other ways. So if you have, you know, seven Miguel Sanos and then you put him in a park where the ball doesn't go over the fence, uh, you're going to lose. Right. And so, and so if you have, if you have a team full of, of power hitters, you probably want a smaller park. Is the point. I mean, there's, like, we can probably argue there's a diminishing return on this curve, too, right? Because at some point, like, the park becomes too small, at which point you've made it so easy for even small guys to home runs that you're negating your own player's power. So there's some kind of sweet spot somewhere where it's like, this park is big enough that mm-hmm. Brian Dozier can't hit home runs here, or at least <laughs> not regularly, but Miguel Sano can. And so that's when you kind of ex- exacerbate your advantage. So you want a park that's like the right size that your guy's balls leave the fence, but just just big enough that the other guys get caught at the wall. It seems like uh, of all of the alterations that have been made to parks, say, over the last five, ten years, and maybe it extends further back than that, but this is in particular with regard to you know the new the new generation of parks. And most teams... Have these new generation parks, mm-hmm. and most some teams have had two of them. <laughs> if, if you're Atlanta, not that Atlanta's not that they participated in this sort of retro uh, trend, the retro park trend, but they have had two new parks in the last 25 years or whatever. Um, 
what all the alterations seem to have been to bring fences in. I, I think the Tigers did it to Comerica at least once, if not twice, right? The uh, the Mets did it maybe in their right field area. Uh, as you mentioned, the Mariners definitely did it in left field. Um, it, it, is there any reason why it makes sense to that all? I mean, what what is it? That, what is the commonality that teams would always bring them in? And again, maybe I'm missing an, an exception to this. Has any team pushed them out? Yeah, as far as I know, no one has made their park bigger. Uh, the, the the adjustments are almost always to make the park smaller. And I think this is, you know, we haven't seen any adjustments to park size in the last couple of years. I think the Mets were the last one who brought their fences in. Um, but we did have a pretty good run there, you know, from 2006 on where offense stagnated. And, uh, you know, in Seattle especially, uh, for, for 10 years, I didn't make the postseason, 15 years, whatever it's been, um, looking for answers of how do we score more runs? Well, the easy thing to do if you can't get better players is just bring the fences in a little bit and then, like, don't worry. Don't don't think about what it'll do to your pitchers. Uh, let's just <laughs> let's have some more offense. And so it's a kind of an easy thing to do when you are when you think offense is too low for your fans and fans do like higher scoring games. I mean, I think this is a pretty clearly proven thing that, like, by, you know, the fans don't want 17 to 16 games, but they don't want 1-0 games either. Um, so there's... Uh, an incentive for owners to say, let's give our home crowd a more entertaining product. A more entertaining product generally means more runs scored. To score more runs, let's bring the fences in. And so um, there's not necessarily a counterbalancing something. Like, obviously, the pitchers would prefer bigger parks, but the pitchers don't really get a say in the matter. There's nothing pushing back telling teams, hey, you should have bigger parks. And, you know, smaller parks also mean the fans are closer to the game. You can put more luxury boxes and, you know, the viewing areas that aren't as far back. If you have a, a larger park, that means you're um, necessarily uh, having dimensions that require people to be further from the from kind of where the action generally takes place, which is the mound and the plate. So I think in general, most of the financial uh, incentives push towards smaller ballparks. Yeah, I guess they would, right? Because you could, yeah, you could fit more. And do you, no, wait, do you think there's a possibility, like, uh, in the case of the Mariners, for example? And do you think there's a, there's a, there's a possibility that a team would have built the park and said, okay, 10 years down the line, we will, ex- we will shorten the fences in left or left center field, thereby actually creating more seats, but making it seem like it was an alteration after the fact. Uh, because we wanted to be clear that uh, we were not the, – the, the seats that were furthest back, we didn't want them to be as far back. No. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I don't, I don't think that actually works, though. Like, it, so like, generally, when you talk about moving the fences, you're not also moving the stands, right? Like, you have some physical structure of, like, beams and things that can't be moved once the stadium's built. Mm-hmm. And then, like – so if you build, like, some left field seats, like, so in Safeco Field, there's that second deck above, kind of, the the scoreboard. Um, that thing didn't come in when the fences came in. That thing is just, that's, it is, it's in place, right? That thing is thousands of, you know, what are millions of pounds of concrete. That thing's not going yeah. anywhere. So yeah. you, you could put the left field fence at 150 feet from the plate, and they would still be in the same spot. Um, so, so I think generally when the fences come in, most times they're not adding more seats. They just add like a walkway or they add bigger bullpens or some kind of fancy scoreboard. Generally teams aren't just putting more seats in the place where the fence used to be. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, it was, Hey, it was a, it was a possibility. Yeah. Um, let's see. We talked about Chris Davis's that, that Oakland Chris Davis, I, I knew that he was, he was known for power, but what, how did that happen? 
How did his whole thing happen? He, I mean, yeah, he came up with the Brewers. Well, wow. Mr. and Mrs. Chris Davis got together yeah. today. <laughs> but he, uh, it seems like, it seems like a player with that sort of power. It seems like those guys, and and with some, you know, at least with the appearance of being able to play the outfield, like they, like they are always ending up at least, you know, in top one hundred, uh, in, to, in top prospect lists. But he never did. So I think it's height, really. So he's five nine, maybe. I think he's listed at five ten. But people I've talked mm. to who've stood next to him said like they're five eight, and he's like basically looking them in the eye. He's he's not a big guy, and so when you kind of look at the guys who are. One-dimensional power hitters, they're generally Aaron Judge size. Well, no one's Aaron Judge size, but like, you know, bigger dudes, right? Like the, oh, like the, Baltimore, like the Baltimore Chris Davis. Right, uh, right. That's kind of what scouts want their sluggers to look like. You don't generally see five foot nine guys hit 40 home runs. That doesn't happen very often. Well, I guess like now we have Brian Dozier's doing it too. Oh, I don't know how tall Dozier is, but I don't think Dozier's that tall. Um, but we have now. Wait, wait, here's, here's the thing. You wouldn't, you, it, it, you're probably correct, regardless of how tall he actually is. You're making a, an assumption based off of um, some evidence, which is you think he's on the shorter side because he's played second base. And as I believe, as you yourself have written yeah. and and supported with evidence, short guys, are, short guys, just get they get put at second base yeah. because because tall guys get put at third base. That's that's the the infielder sorting mechanism is height. <laughs> right there, like the one mechanism. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's not quite that simple, but it's pretty close to that simple. Yeah. Uh, the Oakland Chris Davis didn't get put at second base because he can't throw. Right. Although it would have been second more likely than first. He, he's probably just not good really at any part of playing the NFL. Yeah. So you think it's just a, it's just a question of size. If he had been bigger, if it seemed like the power. Yeah. Was more a product of if he was six like, three and people could have looked at him and said, "I see thirty five home runs a year." He would mm-hmm. have been considered a better prospect than he was. But when it's five nine and it's like, "Well, it's not good contact. It's not a good approach at the plate. It's terrible defense. Yeah. It's not good base running." Then I'm really betting on the power. And how much do you want to bet on the power of a five nine guy? He hit. He the last two seasons he's produced offensive lines twenty percent better than league average. Yeah. He's right around there this year as well. Yeah, I mean I think like an interesting comparison would be like a Vasiel Garcia, right? So like they're kind of similar players in terms of overall skills. Mm-hmm. Uh, to this point, Davis has been a better big leaguer. Vasiel Garcia is finally having a good major league season so far in twenty seventeen after like four years of disappointments. But like, Garcia, when he was coming up with the Tigers, like I remember when he was like twenty years old, and he got promoted, and the Tigers announcers kept calling him like Baby Miguel Cabrera. Uh, because, you know, he was fat, apparently, or like, you know, like the same body type, which wasn't... He had the same body type as a 30... Yeah, right. Oh, congratulations, 20-year-old. You look like a 33-year-old DH. (laughs) Not a compliment. Uh, but that, that were really excited about baby Miguel Cabrera, but like, there was nothing about Garcia that was Miguel Cabrera. Like, he's a, you know, swinging anything hack who didn't have good contact rates and at that point hadn't developed significant power. Now at 25, it looks like he's finally tapped into his power. But Garcia was this kind of taller, bigger, slugging, you know, one-tool prospect who got a decent amount of hype uh, with the Chris Davis skill set, and he it helped that he wasn't 5'9". Yeah. And where was uh, where was Mark Trumbo on this spectrum in terms of prospect uh, awareness? Yeah, I mean, Trumbo... he's a bigger dude, obviously. He's a bigger dude. So he was... Trumbo was definitely a prospect. I think he was older when he came up. Like, he didn't get the big leagues until he was 24, I think, or 25. And in fact, he didn't... He didn't... He had 16 plate appearances his age, 24 season. Yeah. So he didn't really get... 
uh, yeah. full time. So I think he was one of those guys who was like a little bit more of a late development guy, um, and so that kind of hurts your prospect status. Uh, I mean, like, we've seen something similar with like you know Mitch Haniger, um and uh, Aaron Altair, who we talked about I think last week, is these guys who when they get to the big leagues or when they get close to the big leagues, they're 24, 25, 26. It's easier for people just to be like, well, yeah, your tools are interesting, but you're old. <laughs> so we're going to limit your upside just based on your age. Uh, Trumbo, I think, it kind of fell into that category where it was like, yeah, you're a pretty good athlete. You're a big guy. You clearly have, you know, 70 power or something like that. Um, so we think that you're interesting, but just because you're old, we're not going to run your old prospect lists. So Trumbo got three years, $37.5 million this offseason. He did, yeah. Is is that Chris Davis? Mean, is that what the A's Chris Davis is going to get? Um... That's interesting. So I think he's what three years from free agency still. Like the A's traded he might for him. Still be, yeah. For his, yeah, yeah. This like, is his like fourth full season. It looks like. Yeah. So he's got this year and then two more, I guess, with the A's, and maybe three more depending on how the Brewers handle the service time. Um, yeah, I, I would think it'd be interesting to see like what Chris Davis would get right now, what Oakland Chris Davis would get right now in free agency. Mm-hmm. I bet he would get more than Trumbo. He's younger, right? He's twenty eight or something like that. Uh, yeah. What he gets in free agency in three years. Maybe 335 or something like that. Like, this skill set is not something that anyone wants to pay for the aging. Like, when the stat speed slows down, there's nothing else. There's not, there's nothing left, right? Like, he's a, right. he's a one-trick pony and teams don't want to pay for that decline phase of that one thing. Which is, which is the appeal of players with a broad base of skills, right? Not only when they're young do you say, well, he's already got this great baseline of skills. Right. If he improves any one of them, yeah. he could, he could, I mean, like, that's like, well, that was like Andrew McCutcheon, right? Yeah. Where he just kind of did everything pretty well. Right. And then if it all if, – if one or two things pop, then he's really good. Yep. If if multiple, if more than that pops, then he's like an MVP candidate. Yeah. And, and then, of course, as you mentioned, the other advantage is when decline comes around, although maybe McCutcheon isn't the best-case example in this because this <laughs> last year it was not, well, not pretty good, although it also just really doesn't seem representative of his skill set at all. Uh, but when you have the decline – you don't expect everything to um, to decline at similar rates. At the same time, right? Like, if you have a broad base of skills, one thing can go away and you're still okay, right? It's like Jacoby Ellsbury is probably a good example of this. Like, generally considered a bad free agent signing by the Yankees. A lot of people hate that contract, think it's one of the worst in history or in baseball or whatever, especially because the Yankees chose yeah, Ellsbury um, at less money than Robinson Cano. Uh, and Robinson Cano clearly a better player. Cano has played very well in Seattle since leaving New York. So there's a lot of angst about the Jacoby Ellsbury contract. Ellsbury has lost like a good chunk of his power from when he was in Boston. Like when he like, got that monster contract when he hit like 27 home runs a few years before. Now Ellsbury is one of the weakest hitters in baseball in terms of exit velocity. Like he's a slap guy, but he still plays pretty good defense. He still runs decently well. Like he's still a league average player, even though his power is completely gone. You know, if <laughs> if Chris Davis loses all of his power, he's you and me. Yeah, we're not we're not good. No, anyone listening to this podcast right now is nodding in agreement. Yeah, that's right. And then, uh, oh yeah, we talked about Trumbo too. Trumbo, Trumbo and both Chris Davises are also quite similar. Yeah, Trumbo, Trumbo's a Chris Davis. No, I mean Trumbo makes more contact. Uh, the ball's yeah, more Chris yeah. Davis swings and misses more than Trumbo by a good amount. Yeah. Oakland Chris hey. Davis is uh, kind of in the middle. He makes decent contact. Yeah, Oakland Chris Davis is probably more Trumboish in strikeout rate. You mentioned you've mentioned Miguel Sano in multiple occasions. You've also mentioned uh, mentioned Brian Dozier, Dave Cameron. Those yeah, uh, twins on my mind today, I guess. Yeah, well, and and I think that makes sense because a brief examination of the baseball standings uh, suggests that the Twins are doing quite well. 
um, surprisingly well, I'll declare. Um, they are in a, what, a, a percentage point tie right now with the Cleveland Indians um, atop the atop the AL Central. Or no, no, they're just ahead of Cleveland. Uh, one fewer win, one fewer loss atop the AL Central. This does not seem like a likely outcome uh, for entering the season that, that the Twins would uh, be leading the AL Central towards the end of May. No, definitely not. Uh, can you tell me why? Well, uh, one, I have the Indians aren't playing that well. So okay. uh, this is more about the Indians struggling than it is about the Twins surging. Um, mm-hmm. so the Indians have had, you know, a number of injuries. They've had, uh, what, like Danny Salazar just gives up like 15 home runs a game now. Um, their their rotation is not what it has been kind of hyped up to be. Uh, after a really hot start, Francisco Lindor has cooled off, and then the rest of the offense, like Edwin Encarnacion, is not hitting as well as they thought. Um, so the offense is fine, but not great. The starting pitching has been disappointing. So the Indians are scuffling a little bit. Uh, from the Twins' perspective, they've gotten some really great performances out of Urban Santana, uh, who was actually pretty good last year, but has been significantly better this year. Um, so if you projected Urban Santana as an ace, maybe you were like, oh, yeah, I saw this coming. But I don't think anyone out there actually did that. So... Uh, so that's been somewhat helpful. Um, their bullpen has been surprisingly okay. Like, you look at Brandon Kinsler and Taylor Rogers. I think we have them ranked as the worst bullpen in baseball, but they haven't pitched that poorly. So they've been kind of holding on to leads that they've gotten. Um, their defense has been significantly improved. Obviously having Byron Buxton out there helps because he's a really good defender. Uh, but getting Snow out of the outfield and putting him at third base has helped. Um, and so I think uh, they've got a few guys who uh, have been significant defensive improvements over what they had previously. Um, so I think overall it's like the Twins uh, have gotten a few guys overperforming and, you know, a significant improvement from Snow, who uh, looks like one of the best young in baseball. <coughs> Uh, so a couple of natural improvements, a couple of regression to the means, and then the Indians just struggling. If you take the Twins' current winning percentage, yeah. 550, and you subtract the projected rest-of-season winning percentage, which is 458, you get nearly 100 points difference, right? Um, 92 points. But it, And I would have thought that that would have been the largest or certainly top three in terms of um, – uh, biggest differences, right? Uh-huh. Because essentially the, the rest of season projection is at some level a proxy for true talent as a team, right? Yeah. I mean, it takes into account, uh, you know, strength of schedule or whatever. But but in fact, that's actually only the sixth highest mark. The do you, do you have? A, would you like to guess, Dave Cameron, the biggest difference between current winning percentage and projected rest of season winning percentage? Hmm. Let me think. So teams that are significantly overperforming to this point. Yeah. Um, I mean, probably the Yankees because they're like 600. They're number five on the list. Okay. Uh, the Orioles because I know our projections hate them. They're number three on the list. The Brewers because our projections don't like them either. Brewers are number two on the list. Um, and actually, Dave Cameron, I would like to bring something I think about this with great frequency is these uh, – these preseason over under our preseason over under game, Dave oh, yeah, Cameron. Yeah. Uh, do you ever think about that? Occasionally, especially when you tweet <laughs> at me with the red arrows. <laughs> do you know that minimum ninety plate appearances? Do you know where Adam Frazier's batting average ranks right now? Probably first, second. Uh, okay, second. I think uh, some fools ahead of him, Buster Posey or something. Uh, some terrible player. Just no, it's Justin Turner, so, who, by the way, is playing a lot like Adam Frazier this yeah, year. He's dying for power, right? He's like one home run. Yeah, and he's got like, but he's got like a twelve percent strikeout rate yeah, too. Right. 
He's totally different than he's ever been, but he's still really good. Yeah, it's like the number of just drastic changes in skill sets this year. Like, I mean, you know, it feels like every day we can just be like, well, here's Ryan Zerun, Yonder Alonso, Alex Avila, Joey Votto stopped striking out, Justin Turner's changed himself. Like, just everybody mm-hmm. is different this year. Yeah, I don't understand, but is that a, do you think that that's any sort of reflection? Now, now, listen, to be clear, Justin Turner has recorded a 433 BABIP, which is over 100 points higher than his career average. And my guess is probably, you know, say like a little bit less than that than his, than since he, you know, changes mechanics or whatever. So there's, there's a, there's a reason to believe that he's still hitting the ball well. Yeah. But he's just not hitting it over the fence. Right. He's hitting doubles, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, let's see. This is, I'm sorry. This is, a, this is lame. He's got 13 doubles and 140 plate appearances. So the answer is yes. Yeah. Yeah. 162, 160 plate appearances. Yeah, I guess he's hitting doubles. Yeah. Which, fine. He's already been worth two wins. I mean, he's yeah. en route to his best season of his career. Yeah. The fact so that, that's... I mean, like, yeah, I think we talked about this over the winter, but, like, uh, Justin Turner's from L.A., went to college in L.A., like, signed with the Dodgers. Like, he probably gave them a discount. It's still crazy that he only got $64 million as a free agent. This is one of the best hitters in baseball. He should have gotten $100 million plus. What do you think his, uh, what's, when guy gives a, his, like, a hometown discount, what's, like, the markdown usually? I mean, I think it's usually just, like, a few million dollars. Like, generally, players are like, yeah, I like you a little bit more than I like them, but, you know, money is money. I'll take 85 million from you or 90 million from them or something. Like, it's usually close, I think. Like, we don't know what the next fast offer for Justin Turner was, but I'm, it, I don't know how much money he left on the table because we don't know what the next bid was. But, I, like, the fact that no one was willing to go 500 for Justin Turner, or that we, that we know of is crazy to me. He's really good. Yeah. All right. So listen, let's rewind a little bit. Before Turner, we were talking about uh, the Milwaukee Brewers. Yeah. Oh, the I, teams I that are I, overperforming. Yeah, that's right. But no, we're not. We haven't regressed oh, back to oh, our. Back we're to still on tangent. Right. We're tangent number two okay. right now. All right. The <clears throat> the Brewers. I think I said they would be have something equivalent. I forget where I said the over under seventy five base runs wins or seventy three. That sounds right. And, somewhere in there. And you took, uh, you said, I think I, 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 I going to say. I think I took the under. Yeah, you took the under on that. But yeah. do you know what their base runs record is right now? Probably like 550? Uh, no, no. It's tw- they're 22 and 22. Oh, so 500. So, yeah. so 500, yeah. yeah. But still, Dave Cameron. Yeah, I mean, I think part of my expectation for them playing less well was that they were going to trade Ryan Braun at some point in the summer. Um, mm-hmm. You know, anyone who's any good who's not locked down long term, like, if they have good relievers, we've seen that they'll trade those guys. Uh, their pitching's already not great, but the, anyone who's performing decently in the rotation, they'll probably trade. So I would expect that they will perform worse after the trade deadline when they've cleaned house and made room for more young players. Brewers in first place by a game and a half. Uh, and and I, like just like you mentioned with regard to the Twins, perhaps this is the effect not so much of the Brewers excelling, yeah. although they've played quite well, yeah. but just the Cubs, the Cubs not. not excelling. Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. One of these days we're going to have to do a Kyle Schwarber podcast. Because I think, like, I'm still somewhat known as being, like, the guy who's been, like, pretty down on Kyle Schwarber relative to what yeah. the Cubs think about him for years and years. And um, it feels like the tide is, like, really starting to turn. <laughs> like, like uh, not that Kyle Schwarber is now underrated. Like, he's not there yet. But, man, he's he's not been good so far this year. And the Cubs have not been good. And it feels like, like when Ian Happ now hitting well and playing some center field, like, I've actually seen some people talking about, like, should the Cubs just send Schwarber to AAA? Like, is he even one of their best nine position players at this point? Um, it's like a really interesting question of like, how much did the Cubs potentially miss the boat on selling high on Kyle Schwarber when they had the chance? 
Um, because right now you can make a pretty decent case that he shouldn't be starting for them. When was when was the high point for him in terms of being able to sell him? Because obviously he was injured for much of last year. Yeah, before he got hurt. Right? It's like after the twenty after the rookie season, right? When he came up and he was looking like you know they were hyping it was Lance Brookman two point or whatever. If they would have gone into that winter and been like, well, uh, we really like him, but you know we don't really have room for a first baseman on our team, and he probably shouldn't play left field, uh, and he's not a catcher. So let's sell him to a team that could use him at first base or an American League team or something that could use him as a catcher, DH or something. Um, that would have been probably the time to sell him. Okay. Do you think that there's – is there any point in it or any duration of mediocrity before which the Cubs would say, let's try catcher again? I mean, it's interesting, right? Like, they came into the year promising everyone, like, we have not given up on Kyle Schwarber as a catcher. He's going to catch this year. He's got once, I think. Like, that was not as a starter. He came into it. He, like, went behind the plate in, like, the seventh inning for a couple innings. <coughs> so, like, the the mirage of Kyle Schwarber as a catcher is almost entirely gone. Uh, I, I think the reality is, as you get older, the chance of moving back behind the plate just gets smaller and smaller, like, yeah, I would think. I can't imagine yeah. that, like, Schwarber's going to take a year off from catching after taking a year off being injured, and then another team's going to be like, or even the Cubs going to be like, yeah, let's give this a try again. Plus, right. you know, but he has caught this year, you mentioned. He's made at least one appearance. I think he's made exactly one, I think. Okay, all right. All right, so it is <laughs> for, at least one, but for it's a couple, more than For a couple yeah. of innings. Like, at this okay. point, they haven't even seen fit to start him. And Wilson Contreras isn't hitting. It's not like Wilson Contreras is like, this guy you can't take out of the lineup. Okay, uh, you have... Uh, in terms of teams that have most overperformed, oh, we're going back a tangent. Yeah, yeah. So we're done. We're done with that tangent. So New you you nailed the Yankees. Yeah. They're ninety seven points ahead. Okay. Fifth, uh, fifth on this list. Yeah. Third in this list is the Orioles, uh, hundred and eleven points, and then just ahead of them the Brewers, second place on this list, hundred sixteen points. So you're missing the first and the fourth teams. It's got to be the Rockies and Diamondbacks, right? Uh, Rockies is number one. Okay. Bing, bing, bing. Yeah. Uh, Diamondbacks are a little bit further down. Really? Seven. Yeah. Are projections the actually kind of like them? Twins are in between. Uh, uh, maybe. I don't know. Uh-huh. Yeah, maybe. They have a 578 winning percentage, and then they have a 502 rest of season. I suppose that's what happens when, what, A.J. Pollock yeah, and right. Paul Goldschmidt, Goldschmidt are both healthy. Yeah. And then, and they, like, they're pitching – Unilaterally, right, entering the season, it was it was like five guys who all recorded better peripherals than actual run prevention numbers right, last year. Yeah. And then bring in uh well get rid of Wellington Castillo. Right. Although he's crushing in, in Baltimore, but Right. Oh yeah, I guess he's hitting well. That's true. He's just behind he's just uh behind Adam Frazier on the uh, betting average. <laughs> yeah. Almost, yeah. I mean he's no Adam Frazier yeah, is how yeah. I would characterize <laughs> Wellington Castillo. <laughs> Okay, but we've been talking for 40 minutes. <laughs> That's a long time. Yeah, let's stop it. And we have, but another, that was, we have another uh, podcast to do after this. Oh, I know. Yeah, I'm gonna. F- I will be disappointing during that. <laughs> yeah. As opposed um, to this one. Well, at least I was enthusiastic about this one. Okay. I got excited. Mostly, it was a lot of gotcha journalism in this one. Yeah, I feel yeah. gotted. Okay, good. All right. Well, let's stop it then. Uh, well, what did we talk about? What, what did we talk about the whole first half? Oh, diminishing returns. Yeah. It's about like yeah. 10 minutes on your garden. Is time well used. We didn't, we didn't do that badly. No, I think it's fine. But the clay chunks. <laughs> the clay chunks. Listen, people, anyone out there with with heavy clay soil, I'm very interested in your experiences. So, let me share that. Okay. It's a, do you know what type of soil you have, Dave? Um, earthy. 
Okay, that's good. Well, good luck with that. Hey, Dave Cameron, thank you. You've fulfilled your obligation to Fangraphs Audio. Happy to hear it. All right. That has been Dave Cameron. He's the managing editor of Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. 